The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, I want to read from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there where I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning. Uh, as Stacy introduced me a moment ago, my name is Lee Eric Fesco, Director of Discipleship at Christ Prez. And uh, again, thank you, Stacy, for your, your kind words and encouragement. Uh, it wasn't quite as uh, Stacy described, it was much worse. <laughs> but it's great to be here. Uh, and uh, if I've not yet had a chance to meet you, I would love uh, at some point to, to have a, a discussion with you or, or just, uh, just to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Come see me afterwards, and I would love to um, uh, be acquainted with you. Uh, But in the meantime, I want to let you know that my wife, Tracy, and I are the parents of two teenage boys. And so that means that there's a familiar component that resonates with uh, us uh, surrounding this parable. Uh, As you might have noticed, it begins with uh, around the premise of a dispute between siblings. Uh, A man approaches Jesus and proclaims the mantra of all brothers and sisters everywhere, that mantra being, hey, that's not fair. Okay, fairness is a big deal around our house. I don't believe my wife and I ever intended to keep score, but don't get me wrong, there is an unofficial tally that is being monitored. Uh, For example, if I were to purchase one child, say, a new pair of shoes... I could probably set my watch with clockwork accuracy by which the other child will come around upon hearing of these acquired shoes and say, hey, dad, you know that new pair of Adidas that you you bought my brother? Yes, I'm aware. And then it's not like they'll ask me for a pair of shoes too, like can I have a pair of shoes too? They'll research the monetary value of said shoes and assume that they are due something of equal value. And I tell them, I got him those shoes because, you know, he needed shoes. Well, that's, that's really not fair, is what he says. And truth be told, I know where they get it. I know where this comes from. My wife is very careful to spend equal amounts on Christmas between the two kids because everyone knows the money that you spend on Christmas gifts is reflective of how much you love your child. So they must be equal. Please hear the sarcasm in that comment before we continue. And it's, and it's one of these disputes that's presented to, to, to Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Because Jesus, it's just not fair. It's not fair. And to that, Jesus responds by saying, 
It's not my job to be the fairness arbiter between you two, which, if we're being honest, is a bit of a surprise response, because why not? Jesus, why can't you, why can't you settle this dispute fairly? You see, during this time, it wasn't uncommon for rabbis to settle disputes between parties. But first of all, Jesus wasn't part of the official temple leadership, but, but he was a teacher. He did have followers or disciples. So naturally, there would be an expectation that Jesus would settle a dispute as any other rabbi would. And then there's this, Jesus, you're perfect. You're perfect. In Acts 10.42, we're told Jesus was appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. I mean, of all the people that have walked the earth, he is the one capable person of being the judge over, I would guess, any given matter. Yet he says, no, that's not me here. Why would he say that? You see, you and I, we, we live up here. We live up here on the surface. Jesus, on the other hand, goes deep. What Jesus perceives right away is that this isn't an issue, this isn't an issue of fairness. Instead, he tells us this is a heart issue, a heart that's incorrectly ordered. Fairness, fairness leaves you with the illusion that everything is right in the world, that everything is as it should be. Fairness is a liar in that regard. In this instance, Jesus isn't interested in teaching a lesson on fairness, because if he allocates fairness here, the soul remains sick or better said, in a state of death. So Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Does Jesus have something against having an abundance of possessions? Is Jesus anti-wealth? That's going to be our first point today. We're going to try and answer the question, is Jesus against wealth? And I'm going to answer that question right away with a response of, well, that depends. Sometimes he is. So we should all commit ourselves to a life of poverty? Well, I didn't say that. So what gives? He, here's when Jesus doesn't like wealth. Sometimes, speaking of my, my two teenage boys, we'll buy them along with things like shoes. We'll give them food, okay? We'll give them food to be well-nourished. But, but we'll also buy them their fair share of snacks, too, because I believe they could eat around the clock if they had to. So the pantry will be stocked with all kinds of snack foods, and sometimes those snack foods will also catch my attention. So I'll help myself to those foods. And one of the kids will see me eating from this supply and say something along the lines of, hey, that's mine. And to that I say, whose is it? Whose is it? I'll go on. Look around, son. Everything you see in this house is mine. This food, it's mine. The roof over your head, mine. The clothes on your back, mine. Even the things that you say you bought, mine. It's all mine. It's all mine. You see, I'm a benevolent father. I allow you to use all these things which I paid for, for your own benefit. I allow that. Now, I exaggerate a little bit, but, but I'm really not such an awful dictator father. But I do want them to understand something. I do want them to understand the principle of not claiming anything around the house is something they think they, they own and therefore don't have to share. 
And the reason I want them to understand this principle is because that's the underlying principle that Jesus is highlighting here in this principle, in this parable. The text tells us the land of the rich man produced plentifully. It's subtle. Did you catch it? It's there. The land of the rich man produced plentifully. Who produced plentifully? Did the man or did the, the land produce plentifully? And, and then the man says, for I have nowhere to store my crops. We might interject here with whose crops? Whose crops are they? The first error of the rich man in this parable is that he doesn't acknowledge the source of his blessing. He sees it as something that is his when in reality he would have absolutely nothing if not for the common grace of God. James 1.17 tells us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. If you don't understand this, if you don't understand that God is the source and supplier of everything that you have, it will skew your perception of everything else. We're only one line into the parable and every bit of foolishness that comes after this, after this first line, is because of a heart that has no understanding of who the gift giver is that supplies us with everything that we've got. And a heart that understands this is a heart that knows it's in no position to claim ownership of anything. Instead, it acknowledges who the true owner is, his crops, not mine. But he's already off my crops. They're my crops. And it's a downhill ride from there. Sometimes Jesus doesn't like wealth. When? When we fail to recognize that wealth, along with every other material thing that's been given to us, is not really ours. It's all his. Abraham Kuyper, 20th century Dutch theologian, said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It's all his. It's all his, and, and, and the heart that is rightly ordered knows and yields to this reality, whatever it is. It's his, it's not mine. So here's the second error of the rich man. He tears down his barns to build bigger ones to be able to store more. Why, why is that an error? That seems like a wise thing to do. I mean, he shouldn't throw away whatever extra he has, right? Isn't it a good thing that he's wanting to store everything and waste nothing? Certainly, certainly it is. But saving the extra isn't the error. The error is what he says about all the extra. Verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You see, this is a hard issue. It's a hard issue. What the rich man is effectively saying is, I have security. I have stability. I'm untouchable. I can sit back and relax because I'm covered. I'm set. And friends, here's another instance where Jesus would hate wealth. And, and it's, it's, it's true of wealth or, or anything else that you try and put in the place that only God can properly fill. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's beauty or, or smarts. Or, or perhaps it's a social standing. It could be anything. When you try and place your security in anything other than Jesus Christ, you've made for yourself an idol. And you might bristle at my use of the word hate when I say sometimes Jesus hates wealth. He does. He does. When you've made it to be an idol, he hates it. In the context of the Ten Commandments, God tells his, his people in Exodus 20, verse 4, not to make for yourself an idol. And he says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. 
I'm a jealous God. I thought jealousy was a bad thing, right? He has holy hatred. He has holy jealousy that demands allegiance. And we can put holy in front of those words because he is the only being deserving, truly deserving of our allegiance and our obedience. That's why he tells us not to make idols because ultimately they can't deliver. Ultimately, those, those idols will fail you. And they will lead you to death. So he demands our allegiance because in so doing, it will bring us life. He is a jealous God who hates other gods because those gods, those idols, will lead to your destruction. They'll destroy you. We tend to think of idols in the manner of the, of the Israelites, that may be a golden calf or some kind of statue. That's an idol and it'd be foolish to, to worship anything like that. But our idols... The, the idols that we have, that you and I have, our idols, believe it or not, are good things. They're good things that are made to be the best. They're good things made to be the ultimate. They're, the, they're good things that you absolutely, positively must have because your contentment depends upon it. That's an idol. Something occupying a space which only God can adequately fill and occupy. You know, for several years, uh, our family was into watching all the Marvel movies. We were particularly fond of the Iron Man uh, series. And, and when all these superheroes started getting in, in, in movies together, you know, Iron Man with Captain America and Spider-Man, we were all for it. We loved it. Uh, there was one point in, in, in one movie where Tony Stark, who was the genius behind the Iron Man superhero and, and super suit, he was talking with a young Peter Parker, uh, the man behind the Spider-Man mask. You see, it was Tony Stark, a.k.a. Spider-Man, uh, Iron Man, who developed this technology behind the Spider-Man suit. And at one point, he threatens to take it away from Peter Parker because he was misusing the, the suit. And Peter exclaims, I'm nothing without that suit. And Tony Stark responds with, if you're nothing without the suit, then you shouldn't have it. I nearly stood up in the theater and started applauding because... The first time I heard that, I was like, whether they realize it or not, these writers, they're articulating a biblical ethic in that moment. If your happiness, if your contentment, if your identity is so utterly dependent and wrapped up in any earthly object, it will fail you, and it is an idol. And if you've made an idol out of something that is inherently good, you shouldn't have that thing. Even though in and of itself it might be a good thing. Wealth in and of itself is a good thing. It affords the one who holds it and is entrusted with it a means of, of dispersing some of God's blessings. But if wealth becomes the ultimate thing, if it becomes the ultimate thing, what your contentment is dependent upon, then yes, God hates wealth. He hates it. He's a jealous God and has a holy hatred of anything that tries to take a place that only he can fill. Can I challenge you in that regard? Can I be so bold as to ask you to take an inventory of your life and see if there's anything in it in which you might be holding on too tightly? I have to have this. If I don't have this, I won't have security or, or happiness or identity. If there's something that tries to fit in a place that is exclusively meant for Christ, let go of your grip on that thing and say, God, if you want it, take it. Take it. Take it, it's yours. It can't provide me the things that only you can provide. So, so our first point, we're answering the question, is God 
or is Jesus against wealth? The simple answer to this is Jesus is against anything we prop up to be an idol. He's against anything we try to put in a place that's meant for God alone. Here's our second point. In our second point, we want to answer this question. How can we properly use wealth? How can we properly use wealth? We could also ask, when is Jesus in favor of wealth? Or for that matter, it doesn't have to be wealth. It can be anything that's been entrusted to us, anything at all. How do we rightly use that which God entrusts to us? How do we rightly use it? Verse 20 of our passage reads, and and this is in response to the rich fool resolving to eat, uh, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It says this, but God told him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, what good is anything? What good is anything you have when it's time for you to leave this world? There's a saying that goes something along the lines of you can't take it with you when you go, and that's true. Everything you have will one day be left behind for someone else to use or throw away. We can look at this parable in a couple of different ways. The first way, we can, we can look at it from the standpoint of the non-believer. Okay? The one who, who, who doesn't put their trust in Jesus Christ to make him or her right before God. This is the one that looks to their wealth or any other thing and says, I'm going to use this to satisfy me. This is the thing I'm going to use to make me relevant. This is the thing which, in which I'm placing all my trust in. There's a, uh, a country song by an artist named Chris Jansen, and in it he says, Money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat, and, and it can buy me a truck to pull the boat. And you know what? That sounds great. I, I, think, I think a boat would make me happy. I think a boat would be, uh, bring a lot of happiness to my family. We'd have con- contentment, fun, and so much more. And even if it really could produce all those things, at some point the boat breaks. At some point the boat goes away. Anything you have in this life is temporary. Anything. In reference to what we accumulate on earth, James Montgomery Boyce once said, consider what you have gained in terms of what you are losing. Compare your present pleasures with your future deprivation and suffering. In other words, you you can stockpile all you want in this life. You can accumulate all the things, all the pleasures in this world, but, but but if you accumulate those things, not leaving room for the eternal, how good are those things? What good have they done you? How good are those things that buy you pleasure now, but cost you your soul later? Jesus says in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You see, we can also look at this parable from the perspective of a heart that's rightly ordered, one which is oriented towards Christ. You can't take it with you when you go. You can't, but, but, hear me out here. For the heart that is rightly ordered, for the heart that's rightly ordered toward the kingdom of God, everything you have, everything in your possession can be used as a means with an eternal end in mind. Though your possessions are temporary, they can, be, they can serve an eternal purpose. Back in uh, 1994, there was a movie called Schindler's List, which was based on the true story of Oscar Schindler, who saved some 1,100 Jews from the Holocaust during World War II. His method was based upon bribery. He would bribe officials to allow Jewish factory workers into his factory to be labeled as essential workers 
thus keeping them from going to concentration camps in Auschwitz. And there's a scene at the end of the movie which, which uh, correlates with the end of World War II where Oscar looks at his car. He looks at his car and he says, I could have sold this car. This, this car could have saved 10 more lives. This lapel, this lapel that I have on my, my shirt, another two lives or, or at least one. In other words, he began to see the value of human life in every single one of his possessions. How many more lives could, could this have saved? How many more could, could this have saved? Christians have a duty to think similarly. We, we should look at our possessions with a heavenly mindset. We should look at any given possession we have and ask ourselves, how can, how can this be used for God's kingdom? How can we use this for God's kingdom? How am I using this for his glory? When I, when I, put, when I was putting this sermon together, I literally started walking around the house and picking things like, like a chair. And I would ask myself, how, how could I use this chair for God's kingdom? And as ridiculous as that sounds, let me tell you, you can get there. You can get there. In other words, in terms of possession, there are no innocuous things. If we believe in a God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass, that means there are no innocuous details. There are no events in life that happen for no reason. This means that everything we own fits within that scope. Go try it. Try it for yourself. Go find something in your home and ask, how can I use this for God's kingdom? Or try this. Let me stretch you. Let me stretch you a little bit further. Fill in the blank. One day, I would like to have a fill in the blank. Whatever it is for you. Now, whatever that thing is, ask yourself, how can I use it for God's kingdom? How can I use it for God's kingdom? And this will do two things. First, if you realize, you know what? I can't think of any way I can use this for God's, God's kingdom. Well, maybe it's something you don't need. Or it could do this. It could reorient your purposes for getting whatever that thing is. I would like to get this, and I would like to use this for God's kingdom in, in this way. And in, and in so doing that, what you'll discover is that it leads you back to one of our first points today. When you start thinking about your possession in that way and asking how you can use your things for God's purposes, you're pushing your heart and your mind to realize and remember that none of it is yours anyway. It's not mine, it's his. And since it's his, how can I use it for his kingdom? Whatever it is. So that's our second point. How can we properly use our wealth? We use it. Everything that we have, every single thing that we have, we use for his kingdom and his purposes. The rich fool was a fool for all the reasons we've just detailed. He didn't acknowledge that what he had was God's. He put all his trust and security in the temporal rather than investing in the eternal. And to that, the Lord says, is foolishness. And in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Our third point today, how then can we be rich towards God? And what does that, what does that phrase even mean, to be rich towards God? Think about the way that the world acquires wealth. I was uh, talking with my oldest son. We were talking about cars. And I asked him what his dream car was, and if he ever thought that maybe one day he'd be able to acquire his dream car. He told me his, his dream car is a Lamborghini Aventador. And this car currently costs around half a million dollars. I asked him if he expects to be sleeping in this car, too. I remember when I was his age, I had car posters up in my room, and, and I was sure that one day I would have a car like that, too. 
Now, I don't want to discourage him and, and tell him anything like, well, well, you'll never be able to buy that, right? But I did want to talk to him about so, some practical matters as it relates to owning a car like this. So we started talking about what it would take to be able to buy that car. What kind of job do you need to be able to, to have to, to, to afford it? And the truth of the matter is, if you're going to be able to drive and afford something so expensive like that, you're going to have to do something extraordinary. You know, these, t- these cars are typically reserved for, 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 uh, for athletes, you know, that are making millions of dollars or celebrities. Something extraordinary, right? Out of the ordinary. What will be the extraordinary thing that you do that puts you in a place where you could afford to purchase a car like that? And when I ask him questions like that, I can see the gear start turning in his head. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Maybe he'll do it. Maybe one day he'll be able to figure out how to have a Lamborghini to the glory of, the God, glory of God and, and, and to use for God's kingdom, right? But this is the way you build wealth as the world sees it, right? You come up with a plan, you work that plan, and you execute it, and you work, and you work, and you work, and you work. And the people that have this kind of wealth, after they work, work, and work at it, it's usually followed by more work and more work after that. Elon Musk, one of the most wealthy people in the world, it's been said that he works between 80 and 100 hours a week. He's rich. He's he's rich as the world sees it. He's worked really hard for it. So how are you rich towards God? Exactly the opposite of that. Exactly the opposite. James 2.5 tells us this. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Now again, James isn't calling you to divest yourself of material wealth, but someone who is poor, someone who is poor in the world is someone, unlike the rich fool, who puts no trust in their possession. There's, there's, nothing, to, there's nothing to put their trust in. They have no, they have no, they have no, uh, they put no trust in their possession or their ability to acquire it. It, It's someone who says, if I lose it all tomorrow, so be it. So be it. What have I got to lose? My true wealth is found in Jesus Christ. There's no comparison between the two. As the old hymn goes, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. That's what it means to be poor, poor in the world and rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's where you find your wealth. Paul told Timothy to instruct those under his care, 1 Timothy 6, 18 to 19. He told him to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, whatever you have here, whatever, whatever you have here, you're, you're, you're willing and able to let it go, to let it go. Be generous with it. Be generous with it and ready to share it because as we already said, it's not really yours and it's not your true treasure anyway. Your real treasure is Jesus Christ. And so unlike accumulating material wealth, to be rich in God isn't a matter of accumulating or working hard to obtain it. <clears throat> to be rich in God is, is, an, is an emptying of ourselves. We empty ourselves. It's not accumulating, it's emptying ourselves of anything that would take the place of your spiritual riches. Those things being things like forgiveness, peace, holiness, contentment, heaven itself. So it's coming to God not saying, here's everything I've got, look at all I've done. Look at who I am. 
and look at what I've become. I've worked my whole life for this. Now accept me. It's not saying that. It's saying, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I've got empty hands. That's what I've got, Lord. And when we come with that posture, then you're rich in God. What we see in these parables, they're not just good lessons. They're not just good, good lessons to live by. They teach us something about Christ. They show us Christ. They show us Christ in the parables. They help open the eyes of the followers of Jesus to to know him more, to partake of his wealth. Jesus paints this picture of the rich fool. How does the rich fool show us Jesus? He shows us Jesus not by showing us what Jesus is like in this character, rather what he isn't like. The rich fool hoards his wealth for himself, and and this is what pleased him. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his wealth. He emptied himself of his privileged and his heavenly position. He was rich and he became poor. Why? Because this is what pleased him. It pleased him to empty himself by sacrificing his body and his blood so that you could be rich. Not by the world's standards, but by the only standard that matters. His body and blood given for you so that you might obtain his inheritance. It's backward. It's reversed from what the world tells us is is the way we accumulate wealth. Empty yourself. Through the emptying of himself, he made you rich. Would you please pray with me? Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonder of your word. We thank you for the parables that Jesus taught because it was in these parables that you chose to reveal yourself to your followers and that by understanding them, we understand the heart of your kingdom. You've opened our eyes. Please help us displace anything and everything that occupies the place of of, of importance in our lives with, with, uh, with the riches of knowing Christ. Help us displace those things so that we may be filled with Christ's riches, his love for us, and his sacrifice for us. Help us to be like him, to be rich in God through sacrifice. And it's in his holy name that we pray. Amen.